1: luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hi, guys. Spanners here. Just interrupting the start of the show to tell you that on January the 15th, which is Saturday, all day we will be streaming on Mist Apex Motorsport and the Miss Apex YouTube channel. Our 12-hour iRacing endurance event we will be racing GT3s around Silverstone, competing for the Marlin Cup, raising money for Macmillan Cancer support. All of the crew are involved in either commentary or in one of the teams as well. So come and see us on track, uh, drop in, make fun of us, uh, enjoy the commentary. It should be a good laugh. So tune in January 15th, lights go green at 10am. Hope to see you there. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live. F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners-Ready. Happy New Year to one and all listening to this. It's 2022, so we have a fresh start and we can put behind us all the shenanigans of Abu Dhabi. If you have tuned in expecting me to rant about how Lewis Hamilton was robbed by outrageous race control decisions, you are out of luck. I will not be going on here saying that I'm still sore that Lewis Hamilton was absolutely mugged in Abu Dhabi by race control. So be assured that this is Abu Dhabi free from here on in. Instead, I'm going to bring you some news with a fine panel. Then we're going to go all the way over to Jersey and speak to Jeff O'Boyle about multi Twenty One the battle between Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel and then I'm going to introduce you to the first of my meet the panel segments so uh, we're going to introduce you to Bradley Philpot. and don't worry if you don't want to listen to the meet the panel we've still got a full show all the way up to that and then that's just a nice little bonus bit at the end uh, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute we might be wrong, but we're first. And the wrongerest and firsterest of all of the panelists is Matt Do Rumpets. Hello, Matt.
3: Hey there, Spanners, and happy new year to you. Congratulations on surviving the relative apocalypse that always descends upon everyone this time of year.
2: Yeah, especially when you've got other people's kids in the house who are way more annoying. When your kids misbehave, it's a phase and understandable and they're tired. Other children misbehave and it's just down to shoddy parenting. Always. Mm -hmm. And uh, just so you know that you're super valued, Matt, if you were to drop dead this minute, I would instantly replace you with Chris. Steve! Evens. How's it going, Chris?
4: Hey, Spanners. What a 2022 we have lined up. I am so, so excited for this new season, a brand new set of technical regulations. Oh, yeah. I think we have just got a taste of how good F1 is going to be this year.
2: Oh, yeah. We've seen or heard our first bit of car. So we'll be talking about that soon. And we've also got with us Manchester City's own Ellen Ellard. Hello, Ellen.
5: Hello. Am I here just in case? trumpets and Chris goes down is oh, that, and then do I is that when I get the call we're
2: up? in real trouble but yeah I guess uh we we'd sub you in Ellen a happy new year
5: happy new year to you too
2: mm-hmm. yeah and and you're still you're still employed you're still uh, looking forward to the F1 season not disillusioned like some
5: well I'm, I'm hanging in there no I'm really excited <laughs> I've been looking I've been going through my calendar looking at dates and races I can get off to so yeah really looking forward to it and hopefully at that point Travel a bit more. Yeah, the sun will be back out. Yeah, it's going to be dreamy.
2: I, I've been calculating what's the quickest possible time that somebody can win a championship because, like some some fans of some drivers are looking at the championship ahead and are saying they're hoping for complete dominance this season. And I, I was wondering if it could be wrapped up in July. Chris, is that the is that the earliest a championship's ever been won? Uh, Something like that. I think Schumacher
4: got quite a few of his done in August and uh, Mansell back in 92 as well. But why would you want to see that? I want to see a good, intense title battle again.
2: Hmm. Nah. Tell you what, let's turn to Matt and find out what's the... Big Dirty News. Well, Matt, during the off season, I often see this as an opportunity to not be kind of held back by the drumbeat of Formula One news and races. And you think, well, here's a bit of a sandbox where we can do whatever we want. And a bit uh, later on, we'll be talking about historic teammate battles and the meet the panel stuff. But actually, the news cycle has been pretty full, which is why I assembled you. So, what's going on in that then news, Matt?
3: Well, I think the most interesting and fun thing is the fact that. Uh, Aston Martin no longer has an Otmar Safnauer to kick around yeah he, he oh, and his yeah. he and his lawyers have finally done the deed, and he is Oski from the team. Wait, why'd you say lawyers?
2: Why him and his lawyers
3: well I, I I think it took a while to negotiate the exit to the satisfaction of all parties was my understanding,
2: but that would be an understanding and not something I've confirmed with multiple sources. all right, then let's kick off with. Uh, wild speculation and understanding things. If you remember back to, I think, the late summer, and I was quite indignant with rage because Otmar Schaffnauer, I- I'm not saying that right, am I, Matt?
3: It's close enough.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, because uh, Mr Schaffnauer had come out with a statement saying that Lance Stroll was one of the greatest raw talents in Formula 1. And I, I felt that whilst Lance Stroll had done quite well, given his extended opportunity in Formula One uh, and is able to drive safely and pick up the pieces and has had some some great results, I felt that that was an exaggeration, Chris, that he was one of the greatest raw talents in Formula One.
4: I think it's fair to say that Otmar, in his time with Aston Martin, uh, since uh, Lawrence Stroll took over Team Silverstone, as it were, that he has had to say some things that he doesn't fully believe in himself uh, with something of a metaphorical gum pointed to the back of his head, not just with regards to uh, Lance, but with other things as well. Some of the things he said seemed forced and not in his character, according to the people who knew him best.
2: So in in his defense, I think we should say Matt that as a team principal, it is part of your job to, to big up your, your drivers. Uh, But in this particular case, under a little bit more examination because it is uh lance stroll is the the son of the owner uh but the reports you and i heard were that that was actually a kind of a result a result of trying to appease stroll papa stroll by yeah well, yeah, yeah
3: yeah as a freelancer i'm completely familiar with this <laughs> oh yeah. hmm, i would like to not lose my job right now so yeah. sure you want me to play it like that I know, I'll play it like that. <laughs> and I'll just go home and make fun of you later.
2: But the, the, the source that you and I spoke to, Matt, had, was saying okay. that there was a little bit of tension between Schaffnauer and uh, Papa Stroll because some of the team members would like to just be honest and say, oh, well, the performance wasn't up to scratch from Lance. So that's not something wrong with the car on this occasion. I'm not saying it was week in, week out. Um, and that was causing quite a bit of tension. So he makes that statement greatest raw talent and then not long after whitmarsh is then announced there looks to be a bit of a restructuring see that's the point at which we kind of went ah all the all the ducks seem to be in a row now
3: yeah they really did and i can't say i'm surprised because otmar has been a long time formula one person and he knows the sneaky back ways to get things done and you know, Lawrence is a billionaire who's used to getting whatever he wants as rapidly as it could possibly got with as much money as the world actually possesses.
2: Yeah. And so like the feeling was that that was just, that was like too little, too late. And the decision had already been made to, to replace him
5: Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things. I think it's probably an understatement to say there's a bit of a clash of, maybe, it's difficult to say, but there is definitely a clash of perceptions, maybe, I don't want to say morals, but definitely ways they go into, I don't know, that's God, right No, word, no, no, please, please, no, go not, into the not, morals. I don't want, no, because I don't want to say morals, I'm just trying to think of the right word, but basically, they're two very different individuals, aren't they? The way they structure themselves, Stroll wants to get to the top as quickly as possible, and is so determined on seeing that. Whereas Mars brought sort of more of a, you know, in the time he's been at Team Silverstone, he has done a lot in developing people, but a lot of team management, a lot of building people up and building that structure yeah. and relying on people. And then sort of when Stroll came in, you know, you said with Whitmarsh, there's a bit of the difficulty where that was that time where, you know, he denied that they were going to even hire a CEO. And that wasn't sort of him trying to hide the truth. It was more that sort of either lack of communication or him not. Really being in that chain of order. So when you point back to Whitmarsh and and his appointment, yeah, you know at that point it did seem to be tied up.
2: Yeah, and there was also uh, when there was speculation about Perez leaving, he he pretty much flatly had said, you know, had led everyone to believe that that wasn't the case. And then when he was called on it later, he he sort of called a technicality. He went, ah, but I didn't technically say he was staying, and it was it was stuff like that that was that was making him like an uneasy mouthpiece at Aston Martin.
4: And of course, he hasn't exactly vehemently denied that he is going to Alpine, but I think we all know where he's going next. And I do 100% (laughs) agree that there seems to have been a keeping Otmar out of the loop Ah, issue.
2: Okay, go on then. Go on on that.
4: Well, yeah, just with the examples that Ellen was bringing up there about about uh, Checo that you said as well, and about uh, the, um, the 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 situations regarding the the team. Most, you know, first and foremost, I mean, he has been in Formula One for a very long time, as Matt alluded to, since he joined uh, with BAR back in nineteen ninety nine, and has been at Team Silverstone since 2009 and has really been instrumental in navigating that team's lack of finances especially when Vijay Malia suddenly dropped off the map.
2: I was going to say for any newer fans of Formula One just can you just take us quickly through the journey of Team Silverstone and what his involvement was?
4: Yeah, of course so we all remember the uh, the VJ Malia Force India team that came out of uh, Jordan in uh the mid 2000s i forget which year specifically uh then when force india came into some serious financial trouble and fell into administration a few years ago that's when a consortium led by lawrence stroll bought the team branded it racing point and then uh, ultimately rebranded to aston martin for 2021
2: yeah so there's two kind of strands now coming out of this because so uh Otmar Schaffnauer is now is heavily rumoured to be going to Alpine. I personally believe that to be be true, although my, my sources are probably less reliable than yours, but that's the impression certainly that I get as well. Um, so he's going to be at Alpine. So really, the first one is, do we think he will be effective at Alpine? What role do we think he will take? Because I have not had a good impression of him the last couple of years, which is when I've been most aware of him. So I'm really curious to know, how much of that was because he was doing a very difficult job kind of resolving the cognitive dissonance between the, the image that Aston Martin wanted to put out about certain things and maybe some realities?
4: I definitely think it's, it's that. You'll see quite a different Otmar at, uh, at Alpine, for example, and more of the classic Otmar that we've been used to from the Force India days.
5: Yeah, I'd agree with Chris there. I think that he, I think sort of the perception of him from the past couple of years probably isn't the best reflection, especially if you take into consideration what he did before at Force India and, you know, team Silverstone on a whole, is he has done a huge amount of work in keeping that team together and making sure that they, like Chris said, navigated a huge amount of financial difficulties while keeping, trying to keep people happy, trying to make sure people were secure in their jobs, Trying to keep people's faith in the team and everything like that. So I think that we'll see. You know, if he's given a bit more, a bit more of the reins, maybe a bit more freedom. Even um, I think we could see sort of more of what we saw before and that building work in comparison yeah. to what we saw at Aston Martin.
2: So yeah, hopefully it'll be a, you know a, a different a different role. It, sometimes it's different when you're the head guy and there's a corporation above you. Then when you're supposedly the head guy, but you've got a very motivated individual above you like Lawrence Stroll. Uh, But Matt, it's not long ago, you know, people were talking about that outfit as Force India being the best pound for pound outfit, i.e. per dollar available to spend. In fact, if you did dollars points ratio, they were doing very well, weren't they, in the mid-teens?
3: Uh, Yeah, in fact, um, I would argue, if my memory serves me correctly, they even proposed at one point that only aerodynamic benefits above a certain amount be allowed on a per-dollar basis. Like, you couldn't just Mm. put any development on it. It had to actually work, so people wouldn't spend on it. But that's because they had no money. And it was he and Bob Fernley were the pair I remember, but from talking to third parties— I've come to understand that most people think that Otmar was definitely the brains behind that Force India outfit. And what I love about the fact that he might be going to Alpine, and we know this from when we talked with Carter, is that Cyril was the guy who said, oh, we don't have as many guys. Let's yeah. hire more guys. Well, what are they going to do? I don't care. Just hire a bunch of guys. Atmar is the exact opposite of that. And with the resources, those resources at his disposal, I cannot wait to see what he gets up to.
2: Yeah. So what happened for a long time with Force India is they would just get these blinding starts, look really great in the midfield at the start of the season. And then as the development was supposed to come in, that's when they'd start to to tail off.
5: Yeah, definitely. The point about the, being the brains behind, you know, a lot of the, the situations that happened and a lot of what was built at Force India, a lot of what I've read, you know, he has a very strong engineering background as well as that sort of personality background as well and being able to manage people, which you know that that in f1 is quite you know that combination is so valued and the experience that he has will only be you know if he does go to alpine will be put to so much use i think
2: yeah we, we let, let's say when let's assume that that's true just for the sake of this conversation uh, but it it gives us a broader conversation chris about what these roles mean so he was the technical director at racing point uh Aston Martin, right? Is that team principal? He was team principal. Okay. Can you give us a quick primer, primer on on these roles because there's team principals, technical directors, all that kind of stuff.
4: Well, yeah, the technical director is more just in in charge of heading up the the development of the car and the design of the car, especially at the beginning of the year. The team principal oversees every department within the race team itself, Um, and then of course above him you had Lawrence Stroll, who was the Owner of you know the Aston Martin Formula One team and a big chunk of Aston Martin as an automotive brand in general. What they did with bringing back Martin Whitmarsh was create a role in between those two, uh, which were, I forget the the full name of the uh, the company it was te- the technologies. program project division whatever it was sounds like in football Um,
2: when they bring in a director of football which means they want the guy in but haven't quite got a position for him so we'll we'll give you some kind of position so that kind of brings us to to what is happening to to Aston Martin now then that they don't have a team principal
4: they don't have a team principal and I I know Matt is very eager to talk about this as well they don't have a technical director (laughs) at the minute either this is a really crucial time for the Aston Martin project. They've been recruiting up and down this field and now need to appoint a new team leader as well. Someone with the long-term vision that can fulfill the potential of this team, which will be to fight for wins and ultimately titles. I don't think anyone really doubts that they have that capability in the not-too-distant future, but they need to keep enough progress to keep the big cheeses happy, who by the sounds of things are not patient.
2: Mm, well, Lance Stroll's career is only, you know, it's limited by his age, so they haven't got, they haven't got all the time in the world, have they? Uh, but Matt, tell us the drama with filling this position because I've got, I've got a very kind of third division. <laughs> that shows how old I am. I've got a very kind of lower tier football thing in my head going on where they sack the manager and there's no replacement coming in and then suddenly the chairman or the owner in this case goes, I know I can be the, the manager on the touchline. Are we going to see Lawrence Stroll ramping up in a in a team principal coverall thing and, and saying, oh, I'm the only man for the job?
3: I don't know. I kind of hope it happens because I think it would be deliciously I wanna entertaining. It. I want to see it. I want to see yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the real problem, of course, is not, you know, as we know, Toto Wolf, not exactly a technical guy. Amazing team principal. So it, it's uh, Carter, another not technical guy. Did a fine job. It's not always down to can you manage it. But the problem for Aston is the guy they wanted to be their technical director to oversee this project. And I, I will point out that on our tech review, Summers said he thinks Aston in a lot of ways is sitting in a very, very pretty spot come this season. But the guy they wanted to oversee this effort works for Red Bull. Fellows? And Fellows, James Fellows. And uh, Red Bull has decided to hold him to his contract, which does not expire until December of 2022. And they've <sighs> taken him to court. So he expected, based on normal gardening leave, to be starting in January with Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. The court case isn't resolved, but right now, if they rule in favor of Red Bull, he won't be able to start till mid 20. Twenty three, okay. and that
2: leaves them with a bit of a problem. So we can't anticipate the outcome of the court case, but it sounds no. like there's a very real possibility. If it was like a good faith arrangement, where it was like, yeah, you know, you, you're a good fella, hey, we trust you. Oh, oh, off you go, go, go and uh, go and do uh, what role at Aston Martin. Technical director. Oh, we didn't realise that. No, we'll hold you to the contract if that's what's happening. It is possible that they are left with with no one effectively. And we have to remember with our with our regular guest here, Matthew Carter. Effectively, Matthew Carter was playing the owner role at Lotus because he was like the representative of Genie, wasn't he? And yeah. and then it was Cyril Abitable, not Cyril Abitable. The other, I've mixed up my Frenchman, haven't I? Boulier. yes, Eric Boulier, that was it. When he left, they literally didn't have the budget to bring another person in, so he ended up uh, they ended up installing Carter as the team principal. But Aston Martin could be a, in a situation where it's not the budget, there just isn't you know are other team principals just lying around? Why not Whitmarsh? Chris, well, Whit- why not Whitmarsh?
4: Well, I okay, guess so right. I'm not going to just sit here and, and trash Martin Whitmarsh, but <laughs> oh no what, well, the but isn't very encouraging, is it, Chris? Well, you got to remember the last time he was in Formula One, he <laughs> hit the starter pistol on
2: McLaren's rapid descent. Oh, oh hang on a minute. Let, we, we have got some timelines to it work was, out okay. here, Matt. No,
4: Matt, Matt's going to argue. He is at least partially responsible for <laughs> it.
2: Go on. Well, yeah, go on, Matt. I think we're on the same song sheet. Yeah, I think
3: we are too. I think it was the McLaren car division that Ron Dennis started that was primarily responsible for the downfall of all things McLaren. and. Even though Dennis himself was, I believe, by legal decree from the FIA, not allowed to directly operate McLaren for a while. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure Whitmarsh was doing whatever Ron wanted. And, I, and and so in a way, maybe he is the perfect person because he's been kind of exactly in this position. He was stuck between Mansur OJ and Ron
2: Dennis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nominally in charge of a team. So at least he has experience at that. Okay, and uh, okay, so just just to quickly detour all the way back to, let's say, 2013, which is probably the start of the McLaren decline, and and that was the time when you were looking at McLaren coming off the back of having a championship potential winning car in 2012. Lewis Hamilton leaves, 2013, they suddenly, they're missing Q3s, and you're going, oh, well, they're going to recover any minute. But the thing that I think was really crucial in that downfall, Chris, was I'm sure it was Ron Dennis, who made the decision, you you can't win championships being a customer team, therefore we don't want the Mercedes engine. But at the time, they weren't even the second best Mercedes team. Williams was beating them.
4: No, and it all came down to them using like the wrong uh, fuel or oil supplier or something that Mercedes didn't recommend, and that was costing them like a second a lap in lap time. Uh, but the um, I would argue that the dominoes of that descent were, were pushed okay. over so you're... years before the bad 2013. Okay, season. so
2: you're blaming you're blaming Whitmarsh and there was definitely some dodgy engine stuff going on before the hybrid era as well, 2012 in particular. So what you're saying is you don't you don't rate Whitmarsh to come in and do a job at
4: I think that Whitmarsh has got a lot of very great qualities. Don't get me wrong. But his past tarnishes him a, a bit. Hmm. And I would I would love to see the name being, you know, recovered you know and okay. exonerated somewhat
2: for balance i always thought he was a good character and i always enjoyed hearing from him he was always very generous with how he felt i never got the impression he was being there was never any ron speak really was there matt you know it he was a he seemed to be a straight shooter to the press he seemed very happy i enjoyed him as part of my my f1 viewing
3: yeah and he could again be a nice bridge between stroll and the team and by bridge i mean mostly protecting the team from the um, right. impatience of papa stroll
5: he's already committed to the team as well and they need a long term option true and he's already shown he's obviously put the commitment in there and i totally agree cuz i think uh, it's difficult cuz you need he's got he's got the f1 experience and he's yeah. got that and he's able to like you say bridge the gap which is going to be so valuable because a long-term option needs the staying power in what is going to be a very difficult job.
2: Well, he's won. He's won a title. He's won a title with the exactly. The, yeah. There you go, Chris. You won a title.
4: Yeah, McLaren's only title of this century. Amazing when you think about that, isn't it? Um, th- it's worth remembering that Whitmarsh's role at Aston Martin stretches beyond the Formula One team, and there well, are other projects, other Aston Martin projects involved in this this um project department whatever it's called uh and that that's why they need the team principal who
2: is solely responsible for the f1 team matt i think that was a cover i think that was a cover and this was the plan all along
3: yes and i was gonna say but that's why you have a technical director to solve that problem
1: Mm. technical directors
4: aren't team principals matt
3: that the team principal doesn't have to pay as much attention if you have a good tech director oh wait they don't have one yet oh sorry
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting time. So let's see what comes out of that. Because we've already seen, Chris, a car launch. We've seen the full definite real 2022 Mercedes. Get in there. Hashtag 44 or 63, whoever you're cheering for.
4: Yeah. So I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here. Um, but we haven't seen a taste of 2022, unfortunately. Aww, but we sang uh, on.
2: They showed a badly lit car,
4: Matt. So, well, it was a real model for sure. Yes, but we've heard a taste of 2022 and that does matter.
2: Yeah. Come on, lay out for it, Chris. What have we seen and what have we not seen?
4: So what we've seen is is definitely a real uh, model, but it is just basically based on the the demo car. Remember the one that Formula One themselves? Yeah showed off at silverstone to see this is what we expect 2022 is going to to look like and we expect the real cars to look very different because the best engineering minds in the world are looking for loopholes in these regulations and believe me they're going to find them so we're not going to see something that looks like what formula one shared or like what mercedes has shared so far it is purely in every sense of the word a teaser
2: okay
3: Yeah, we were hearing lots of rumours that especially the front ends of the cars are going to look wildly different and might be using different types of suspension than we're used to seeing. So, yeah, there's no way that's what Mercedes was planning. I mean, if you looked at it in any detail, they didn't even have four elements on the front wing like the second FIA car
2: did. Well, what's the point then, Chris? You're the PR man. What was the point? What have they done to me? Drumming up hype. Okay. why so early? Because, because why
4: not? It's the start of the a new year, so we're all excited for the new season coming along. We are really excited about these new technical regulations, but also for Mercedes, it's to kind of leave twenty twenty one in a nicely wrapped bow and just push it to the side, and we're we're not going to talk about it anymore because we're focusing on twenty two.
5: Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of there's still, as we can all see on F one Twitter, a lot still hanging on and but that's the thing you want to capitalize on that and sort of drum that back up again and make sure you're sort of regardless of the wave make sure you're riding it because you know championships aren't just one well most and mostly one on the track but there's lots that goes in behind it in behind that and behind the scenes as a team and they'll just want to keep drumming up that support you know, making sure yeah. that everything's being shared around and that everyone is seeing what they want.
2: So I don't know, Ellen, the impression I kind of got was that, especially with the fire up and it being early, it was kind of like a, it was a war cry a bit, wasn't it? A, yeah. a very a quiet corporate Mercedes war cry.
5: It's, it is kind of a call to action, isn't it? You want, you know, you want people to see that and be like, right, let's go. Because a lot of Lewis Hamilton fans are still, they just want to get in there and see the fight. You know, they want to see round two, like we all do, like, you know, like we do with boxing. You want to see round two. You want to see them go back out again. And, you know, we have to wait for it, but sort of they can drum up sort of that attention and sort of that support behind the scenes already and get that moving. So Mm. then when the time comes, they're there and they're ready to go. And also new driver lineup as well. That's the thing. Like there is so much that is going on. And I know that's the same, you know, with a number of teams, but they want to make sure they're getting this content going, getting this fired up. So 2022 is going to be a massive season.
2: We'll come back to the driver content in just a minute, Matt.
3: I was going to say, don't forget new livery as well. We have heard.
2: Yeah. So they're going back to the silver livery.
3: Yeah. But as far as the engine itself goes, it is a massive, it is a massive bet by Mercedes at the beginning of the year to say, yeah, here's our power unit. And we know from Sam Collins that it is their 2022 power unit. It's not just some, something they cobbled together to make a video like the model. So like the it's finished,
2: the, the finished it's, one. It's
3: yeah. It's like together and done and fired up. And it's not just our morale. If you're a Mercedes supporter, it's the factory morale, too. It's, uh, we've seen yes. from people who are in F1 saying, like, it is a moment. It's an exciting and powerful moment when you're in the team and you hear that for the first time.
4: 100% agree with everything you said. Are we sure it's finished, finished, finished? And there's not maybe some bits that are going to come and arrive in testing? Or is the homologation date passed?
3: Uh, February 28th a homologation date. Um, they can run older specification Homologations um, with permission for reliability, which is, I think, kind of what Ferrari did this previous season. But, yeah, I'd say, you know, it's 99% done.
2: Okay, we're going to roll round uh, back around to engines when we talk about Ferrari in just a little while. But just while we're on Mercedes, yeah, new livery, but also, Ellen, I mean, they've really been pushing and marketing their, their new driver, you know, their 63 number driver George Russell and he is really being set up as the company man like it really feels like a great fit
5: definitely I think I think it fits so well and especially with just like the imagery that they've got I just you know I don't know I'm gonna say like this two sort of gentleman vibes they've got kind of like it sort of flows over i don't want to say that but like it kind of is but like you know the the how he finished uh, at williams and those shots of him walking through the paddock you know last race and then that's just sort of flowed so nicely but again he, george is such a marketable character Very much so, he's yeah. so, you know he's one of that crop you know that we're going to see all back together again um, that we had a couple of years ago when it was Alex, George, and Lando. Yeah. All, we're going to have them all back oh, yeah. together. They're, and they they're are back, so, aren't they? yeah, and they're going to, they're, they're so marketable. So they're going to capitalize on that as, you know, as you'd expect they will. And um, yeah, it's yeah. exciting. So
2: whilst Lando's got all his streams and stuff and is joking around, obviously with, with Russell, it's very much on Instagram, shirtless at any opportunity. <laughs> Look how chiseled I am. Uh, but also, I get the feeling that. He's he's very bullish as well. Like he's already Team Mercedes. You know, he came out after Abu Dhabi and said what happened definitely wasn't right, and that uh, Lewis Hamilton was absolutely mugged by race control. Oh no, that was me. Um, but you know, he's he's all, he's already kind of you feel that fire. And I know as much as as people are trying to pit this as Russell versus Hamilton, I, I still feel like it's kind of Mercedes against the world, and that Russell might be bought in on that
5: definitely i agree with that i think he's the the right image he seems really he was loyal to williams but he seems really loyal and you've got to remember he's sort of grown up around the same in the same sort of era that i have growing up watching f1 this is the dream for him he is at the absolute pinnacle of the sport right now racing True. alongside yeah. one of his idols He is going to be there to absolutely toe the party line when he needs to as well. But he's just he's I imagine this season he will just have a bit of a time of his life, hopefully not put a huge amount of I I know there's so much pressure there anyway. But I hope he enjoys it as well and doesn't get swept away in, you know, all the sort of heavier side of things, the politics that we've seen last season. But he he's going to be living his absolute dream.
2: I think Chris, yeah, expectation management on him. I think they're going to look after him. I, I think they're not going to be slating him and being like, oh, you were half a second off of Hamilton on race pace." Oh, what an idiot! You need to. They're not going to be on the radio like they were with Bottas, Valtteri. Do something and like poking with a long stick from the pit wall. I think they're going to protect him. They're going to look after him. They're going to manage expectations.
4: So I, I think they won't have to do that with George for one thing. Unlike sure. with, with Bottas, oh, oh, yeah. for a multitude be, yeah. of reasons. Um, but you know, it's worth remembering. Russell has been part of this Mercedes camp for years. They helped him all the way through his junior career, right up until the F two title that he won back in twenty eighteen. Through the Williams years, of course, as well with a Mercedes customer team, and now finally entering the big dogs. And I know you think he's going to toe the party line well, just a, a bit, but for me the story of the season going into 2022 is how are they going to be as teammates? What is the fight going to look like? Because no one really knows where any of the teams are going to end up, but we all expect Mercedes to be at the front and they do have the best pairing on the grid.
5: When I say tow the, sorry, when I say tow the party line, I, what I don't want to see is a kind of sort of like what we've seen at Red Bull where it has been very much first and second driver, very much like Max is the leader. And like, there's no, no discussions there. And Perez is used often as like a, you know, he's used there to help, um, to help Max. All right. You don't have to instantly. say it out loud. Oh God. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I know it's you know, true. He's, he's there to assist and he does very, very well. And, you know, you can praise him for that this season. Also, you know, I think it's, you know, I'd like to see him sort of go, more and just be able to just go off and not be sort of so ruled by that. Yeah. So I would really like to see this set. I don't want to see that happen at Mercedes. And I don't think it will because I don't think that from what I've seen, and when we're talking about man management, I don't think Toto is sort of the same minded as what you see with Horner in the way that he'll implement sort of that first and second driver. I know we've seen it in the past with Bottas as well, but i just think that they might let him go out let him race yeah and yeah. then and then but if if they obviously if they need to for the championship i think fair enough but not to the same extent that we've seen at red bull
2: so so here's the difference i think with bottas the talent difference meant that it was natural for bottas to be the number 2 fairly early on in the season i think in that first season it's going to be a settling in period and the points will will very likely i think even on equal talent favor hamilton and then you go, okay, we're we're all behind Hamilton as a team now to win the championship. And and I'm 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 confident Russell will do that in that situation. But I reckon, Chris, someone's had a, a whisper in his ear and has said, George, we're looking absolutely mint this year. All right. Hamilton's not staying for twenty twenty three. All right. So just yeah. chill, relax, get your feet under the table, and um, we're gonna smash the next five years.
4: I, I would say, yeah, two years in in Hamilton left is quite likely and then George will just be the number one a bit like how Alain Prost came into McLaren didn't bother Nicky Lauda for the world championship so much just sat back and and watched how to win a world championship and then went and won four of them yeah. uh, but having said that I would be surprised if there isn't a flashpoint between those two at some point this season Ooh,
3: Matt It would surprise me if there would be that much of one, like uh, uh, Lewis is on brand new tires, let him buy. No, I won't kind of classic Red Bull conundrum from years past. And and speaking of Red Bull, when we're talking about Russell so far, we're all assuming he's going to walk in and immediately be a threat to Lewis or there or thereabouts on pace. But what if he's not? What if it takes them some time to settle in? What I remember, and I remember this from Gasly and Albon, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, is if it takes them some time, look for how rapidly the media will start writing those. Ooh, is he really up to being Lewis's teammate? Because I feel like the media were responsible for both Gasly and Albon ultimately getting the boot as much as their own performances, because they pushed that narrative at the top teams very heavily. Ellen, then Chris.
5: I just He's proven that he can jump into that Mercedes and do very well in the past.
2: That's true, Chris.
5: Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Trumpets. No, don't look at me. <laughs> ta- ta- don't look at me like that. I, I, that performance. I mean, yeah. But very little of that, I think, was his fault. I think he has the ability. Especially, look at you know he's got the opportunity, and he has. He's known now. Look at how much preparation he's had in comparison who I, I would be surprised if he didn't jump in and was up there.
3: For fun, I wanted to make the point the track only had like three corners. But the thing <laughs> that I am going to say that is very real is that it is an entirely different aerodynamic specification. The car will not be the same as the one that he jumped into. And no one knows where they're going to be until we get to Barcelona and probably the first race of the season. And so that's why I say on the off chance, just remember this marker. At the end of the
4: day, it's you know, it's a it's a racing car. It's got an engine, two pedals, some wings on it, and four tyres in connection to the ground. He will be. I don't think anyone's even considered the possibility that he will not be on pace.
5: Well, it's it's a talent thing. The point I'm making is it's a pure talent thing, and he has that. And and you know, so many people believe that.
2: Agreed. I I don't think he's going to be on Hamilton's pace in the first half of the season, but. Everyone, freeze this frame. In fact, I'm going to click. This. I've got a little button here that saves a replay. There, go. Click it. I'll put it in a special folder. Let's move on. It's not because of lack of talent. Calm down. I know he's good. Just think. Uh, just think. You don't just jump into Lewis Hamilton's team and, uh, and dominate in the in the way that some people are wishing that he's going to. Well, we, we wish him all, all the best. A wonderful character for F1, and without doubt, a future star. Now, then, there are two future stars in the red cars that's got to be the first time ever in my f1 fandom Matt, that i've broadly liked both f1 driver uh both ferrari drivers um i'm not a mega fan of either But they're they're clearly good, and I've had my head turned a little bit by Carlos Sainz, and it's not just his hair, which I imagine smells fragrant as a spring morning, but but his performances have been fantastic. And, you know, the only one, really, of the drivers who were in a new car last season that did well. The thing that bothers me about Ferrari, Matt, is the constant overhype, and you've been as guilty of this as anyone Because Ferrari like to go out and they like to do well in test sessions. They like to go out and they like to be fast in FP1. And for that reason, the whole of the hybrid era, they have been easily the most overhyped team. And look, once again, in the off-season, people are saying, Ferrari, they've got a real chance this year.
3: Yes, well, we are hearing some interesting things. And should we start with engines? Because we were just talking about engines.
2: All right, so the engine that was good because of some alleged... Advantages that they were then forced to back down from. um, Is the period where they're locked into the secret agreement that may or may not have been a punishment for cheating, is that over now? Is that done?
3: Uh, Well, no. I mean, I think the agreement was they explained to the FIA exactly how they did what they did. And then the FIA came up with a way to not let any other team do that same thing. But what we are hearing is the ERS upgrade which they got last season, was actually for this season. And they brought it in early in case there was a problem with it. And in fact, it was fantastic. I would say, outside of driver performance, it was the reason that Ferrari wound up beating McLaren so handily in the Constructors' Championship. But what we've heard is now about the thermal part of the engine, or the ICE, the internal combustion engine. And we've heard that not only is it light, which is potentially a big advantage for them, but that their fuel partner has reclaimed all but maybe 20% of the energy loss of going to the new fuel which all the teams have to use this season.
2: Okay, I followed some of that, but Chris, beating McLaren isn't a recovery for Ferrari. This is Ferrari, for goodness sake. This is the team that people say is F1. They've won a billion titles. Beating yeah. McLaren to third, that's not the bar. There's still an awfully long way. There's a huge gap. Yeah. I will eat... Oh, I hate it when people say they'll eat their hat. I will eat a sandwich that isn't my favourite, one with pickle in it, if Ferrari have bridged a performance gap to the top two.
4: How do I know you don't actually like pickle, though? Maybe oh. you secretly like pickle and you're just using this to make sure that your punishment isn't mm, too bad.
2: I'm a man of honour. I wouldn't sit here and lie to you about sandwich fillings.
4: I think you would, those banners. <laughs> but... As much as what you have said is correct, it is most definitely progress. Ugh. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, the recovery is stalled a little bit by the fact that we had a set of regulations that lasted a year longer than originally planned, because everyone's using the the new set of regulations as like starting from zero. This is our hopes and dreams start from here and we have the potential to to steal a march on these other teams. And Ferrari is one of those teams hoping to have done that and use it to get themselves back up to the front of the field. And these these bits of information we keep hearing about, these engine improvements, it's all the things that we need to be hearing to see Ferrari fighting at the front of the field again.
3: I agree. Although I think by imputing Spanner's honour, Ellen has now taken your place as my replacement when I dropped dead. <laughs>
2: it was it was worth it was worth the risk for for the for the record i i'm not wishing you dead i've just i like to i like to have contingencies
3: <laughs> i understand everybody does what i love about the ferrari engine is supposedly they've gone and found a new partner and they're using ultralight materials this is making me think of what honda did coming into the 21 season with their power unit yeah and that they completely redeveloped it and brought it in new for 22 i think that if what has been reported is accurate that they really will in engine terms have entirely bridged the gap and may be actually quite ahead of some of the other engine manufacturers
2: oh well i am convinced ferrari are back this time it's real
4: well you know ferrari didn't have a jet division to help them work on things like turbo blades and their MGUH, like Honda, did. The weight thing is really important. It's an under-talked-about aspect, I think, of development, because weight is so key, not only to the distribution of weight across the car, but also when you're underweight and you have to add ballast in, suddenly you put weight in places you want it to be. Yeah, and
3: the person who reported this, Giuliano De who writes for Formula One Uno, Um, made that exact point that with the new aero regulations, especially in low speeds, the cars are going to handle, it's going to be like driving a cow through the hairpin at Monaco, for example. And the ability to move weight where you want it could be critical early on to getting good performance out of the car.
2: We've got to work on your analogies though, Matt. Just
5: Can we just say that he then went move weight and didn't do move weight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Ellen. You're ready to be a dad. Chris, (laughs) (laughs)
4: the reason for this low speed mishaps in handling is because of the return of ground effect and the venturi tunnels because they only work when the car's going really fast that's when you get downforce in the low speed corners no air over the cars and suddenly they handle all waywardy and I think we may finally see cars sliding again, and I like that because that's when Formula One cars look dramatic and exciting.
2: Oh yeah, you don't you don't actually have to look very far back. You know, look, go and look to the early two thousands and look at uh, the drivers wrestling the car out of out of a hairpin, and you really see you know they are soaring at the wheel a lot more. I wouldn't mind seeing a little a little more of that. No, <laughs> ah, close. <Meh. laughs> Grooved tires. That's what that yeah, was. Yeah, I've certainly. been saying grooved tires for ages, but everyone just yells at me. And before Uncle Steve and the production team yell at me, we do have to move on to the next segment. But it's time to say goodbye to our panel. So do go and follow Chris Stevens at Chris on Racing and follow him on on TikTok where you do simple dances in crop tops.
4: I, I posted my first TikTok at the end of last year. I legit did. It was this stupid little end of year.
2: Uh, trend that everyone was doing. Okay, fair enough. Uh, go and search for Chris Stevens on on TikTok. That surprised me. I didn't know that was coming. Go and no, follow. I'm not her. proud of it. <laughs> go and follow at Ellen Elard underscore on Twitter. Go and go and give her a follow. And on Instagram at Ellen Elard double underscore <laughs> at
5: Ellen underscore Ellard.
2: Okay, that's appalling. You okay, we're got... go, we're going to search <laughs> for Ellen Ellard and you'll see what she's up to. And go and follow my friend Matt Two Rumpets at Matt PT 55 and uh, Matt Trumpets on Facebook as well. Yes,
3: I am on Facebook, and I occasionally
2: do things there. And if you do want to support the show, do feel free to go and check out patreon.com forward slash Apex. I'm Spanners Ready on Twitter and Richard Ready on Facebook. We're going to move on now and talk about a historic team battle. We're going to go all the way to Jersey to speak to Jeff O'Boyle, uh, the team battle between Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel, culminating... In the famous multi twenty one. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Sponers. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm I'm keen to talk about this one because it, it felt like it was so quickly forgotten how how much of a rivalry they, they had, and Weber was kind of left and confined to almost a footnote really. Yeah, he
6: was. I think the, the Vettel era is remembered for his dominance, his four world championship titles. But I think people often forget that actually in 2010, when Weber and, and Vettel were put together, they were actually really closely matched and had history, or should I say, had Dr. Helmut Marco had a different favourite within the playground, then, you know, the history might have been quite different for old Weber,
2: but sadly it wasn't to be. Now, let's set the scene a little bit because uh, Sebastian Vettel was um, a plucky up-and-comer, He'd won one race in 2009, was it yep. in Monza, in the wet? In the wet, yeah. So he was looking like a, a proper young superstar, whereas I think it's fair to say Mark Webber, although popular and charismatic, by then was he seen as a bit of a, a journeyman driver? Yeah, he
6: hadn't uh, He hadn't exactly, um, well, after his initial performance in Minority, he hadn't set the world on fire after that. In, in looking at the research for this piece, I was amazed that he was actually fifth. He finished fifth in his debut in Minority in Australia. Yes. you think that's an incredible yeah, performance. But he, yeah, he um, he qualified eighteenth, and most of the field were wiped out in the first lap. So it wasn't quite <laughs> as stellar as the history books would show. But after that, he had fairly lackluster periods at Jaguar Williams. He never really got on top of the car. In the end, um, good old Frank offered him less money to stay for a year than he had been paid the previous year. So that was it. Ooh. He was off to Red Bull. So yeah, he was. Um, I think he was lucky to get the the period that he or the opportunity at Red Bull that he did because it was all starting to fizzle
2: out a little mm. bit for him in the Williams. So, Mike, my, my, I'm struggling to remember what team was Red Bull. Where did that come from? Yeah, that was originally Minardi, actually. Was it? Uh, oh, yeah. So he went back to his old outfit, if you like, but it had become Red Bull. Yeah, slightly upgraded with Adrian <laughs> Newey and and M- um billions, but yeah,
6: effectively back to the stable again and and got on top of the car you know, really well, really quickly. Uh, was actually showing Vettel the way in 2010. I mean, we'll come on to it, but he no. won the first two races. Um, he was on track to win the third race of the season at, at, in Turkey. And
2: then, of course, all, all hell broke loose and uh, Vettel had other ideas. But well, uh, desc- Describe that incident uh, to us, because this is this was, again, th- I guess, the first sign that all might not go smooth. Yeah, I mean, Weber, I think, probably thought he was, um,
6: on equal, equal footing with Weber, or sorry, with Vettel before this incident, yeah. but he was left in no uncertain terms afterwards that he was definitely a number two driver, which we'll we'll come to onto again. So in the race itself in Turkey, um, Weber was leading, Vettel came up behind him with a pace advantage and um, it was, well, he, he threw it up the inside, which was fine. And he had the corner, he had the line, he was past Weber, but then inexplicably he jinxed to the right for no reason. It was almost like, do you remember the clerk incident with Vettel? Um, was it 2019, 2020? In Interlagos, um, yeah. Interlagos, in yeah. When uh, when for reasons only known to Vettel, he jinxed across on his teammate to try and put him off. He did exactly the same thing, ended up with a puncture, was out of the race, walked away doing that famous crazy sign against his helmet. Vettel went on and, and finished sorry, Weber went on and finished um a third in the race. He had to stop for a new wing. But um in commentary, when you watch it. Brundle watches it again and again and Martin Brundle, you know, pretty balanced at the best of times calls it and says, that's 100% Vettel's fault. I'm sorry, Seb, that's 100% your fault. Yeah. Everyone else in the punditry uh, corner thought, yeah, Vettel's fault. Inexplicable. Don't know what he's doing there. By the time Mark Webber had finished the race, I think Marco had already, Dr. Marco had already given um, an interview. I'm guessing that the, the, the doctor isn't in uh, in dip diplomacy because <laughs> he, uh, he, he, uh, immediately called out Webber as being at fault for it. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> it a, little, a little bit surprising. Um, and then there was no punishment for, for Vettel at all. He was The arm was put around him. And I think in in Webber's book, Aussie, Aussie Grit, uh, he, um, he he talks about that. And I think that's when he, he knew that, you know, the
2: writing was on the wall in terms oh. of parody within the team. Now, that's interesting because Red Bull really don't mind favouring a driver. And then if you fast forward to 2014... With Verstappen and Ricardo, where, it, I'm sorry, Verstappen blatantly just moves across and, and breaks early or whatever, but causes that incident. And I think it's yeah. Ricardo that ends up behind him, going yeah. behind him. So uh, to me, like that, no doubt was Verstappen being very aggressive on his teammate, yet they went and kind of supported Verstappen or they said it was equal fault. And I think that's one of the things where Ricardo went, hmm, I'm not the the favorite here.
6: Yeah, I'm off to Renault and for 50 million good reasons, I'm going to be driving a different car <laughs> next season. But yeah, there's yeah. That. I think to, to be fair, they're consistent. They back a horse uh, regardless. And you know you saw even this season, the way they backed back Max whenever he was up to all sorts of antics and the world seemed to be up against him. But no, he can do no wrong in their eyes. And it was similar back then.
2: Yeah, so we had a suspicion there that perhaps he wasn't the favourite child, uh, but it was confirmed a little later in the season. Yeah, I mean, the
6: the, um, the championship ended up being very close. Weber led the championship more often than, than Vettel did. Vettel kind of pipped it with a late surge. Uh, uh, but the late surge was helped a little bit in Silverstone because Red Bull had turned up with an upgraded front wing. It, it no doubt gave a performance advantage, but silly old Seb damaged his in qualifying, didn't he? So... Um, rather than run the old spec wing, uh, the, the the order came in to literally take the front wing oh, off Weber's car, <laughs> put it on on Vettel's car and send Weber out with the old wing. And as, as luck would have it in the race, and you might say karma intervened, uh, Vettel had trouble, didn't finish the race, Weber went on to win it. And there's now this, this sort of most sarcastic celebration in Formula One history on the radio when uh, the uh, team principal, Horner, comes on and goes, congratulations, well done, great, great
2: finish, uh, Mark. And Mark says, yeah, not bad for a number two driver. Yeah, that must have really stunk. So that shows that Webber wasn't completely convinced that he was a number one driver before that. And, and And whilst it might come across as sarcastic, not bad for a number two driver, it was sort of true... Yeah, that's that's the hurtful thing
6: about it, isn't it? It's the truth that that, that hurts most, isn't it? So Yeah, yeah. he I mean, he'd had his suspicions after the turkey incident when, you know, Vettel literally ran him off the road. Mm. The team, uh, the team owner blamed, um, blamed the victim. And then, uh, you know, there was no retribution. So I think he, he kind of had a suspicion that maybe he wasn't the favourite child. But whenever someone's when their dad walks into the room, takes the, the toy off one child and gives it to the other one, you kind
2: of know that your um, your number's up, really. Yeah, you're not the favourite kid. But looking at the, the, the season and the championship points, I didn't realise it was this close. So you had Sebastian Vettel on 256, and then just pipping Fernando Alonso uh, with 252. So only by four points in that season. But then Weber is only 10 points behind that. So only 14 points behind Vettel. And Hamilton... He's only two points behind that. That's, I, I've forgotten the season was that close. To be honest, yeah, it was a, it was an
6: absolute banger of a season uh, in twenty ten. Uh, there were there were a couple of good seasons around that period, despite the, the sort of perception that red bull just dominated for four years they didn't actually uh dominate and, and sebastian vettel won the championship sometimes without the best car it wasn't always the sort of blown diffuser and the big new advantage but yeah it was a great season and and you know had it turned out slightly differently a bit of luck on his side if he hadn't been wiped out in turkey maybe weber would have been the champion and
2: maybe dr marco would have favored him over vettel and then maybe we <laughs> wouldn't knows? have a four-time world champion in vettel who knows Yeah, we'd have an aussie champion and it would have ended the kind of Brit German domination a bit early, uh, but then we see with Ricardo, he looks at that situation and goes, "No, I'm off. I'm off to Renault." But Weber's stuck it out for another three seasons after that, and and he he never really is considered on par at any point after that. No, not, not in the slightest.
6: Um it's it's really strange. It's one of the most puzzling things about the, the whole Weber Vettel rivalry is is how long Weber essentially stayed in a in an abusive relationship. Mm. You know, he 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 his stock would have been high in twenty ten, certainly the highest it had been up to that period. He would have had other opportunities. And I know he was talking to other drivers. Well, I say I know as, teams, if, yeah, yeah. as if he told me. Um, he he mentioned it once over over racquetball, but um, yeah, he, he uh, don't he, don't
2: don't play coy. <coughs> You're more well connected than you than you care to admit. <laughs> so, but uh, I I reckon he would have been thinking we reset in 2011, and look, it was only I was only 13 points, 14 points behind. I can have him in 2011. Yeah, that's that's the motivation. It's sort of the the different uh, sort of psychology between him and
6: Nico Rosberg, who who sort of did it, had enough, and that was it. He was out. But yeah, it was um, twenty eleven, twenty twelve were very difficult for Weber because the the Pirelli tires were, were proving pretty difficult to get on top of. Vettel found a way to do it in the Red Bull that Weber never really managed to do, and it was only late in twenty eleven that he managed to put any sort of run together at all.
2: Yeah. So what people were saying at the time was. That Webber couldn't lean on the tyres anymore, and that he was a driver that liked to be very aggressive and and kind of get all the way over. And, and you couldn't really do that to those Pirelli tyres, or you just ran out of them very quickly. Yeah, they were a bit like chewing gum in, in, in that sense. It's chocolate tyres, wasn't it? Chocolate tyres. Yeah.
6: yeah. Especially the rear, as he wasn't particularly deft at um, throttle control. Um, in a way that Vettel sort of was. So, yeah, I think that um, he never really got on top of it. And by the time he worked out how to actually drive within the limitations of the tyres, Vettel was long gone. And by that time, he really had cemented himself as a number two
2: driver. And I think we need a bit of historical context for people who might be a bit newer to Formula One. It seems very normal now to have a number one driver. So we literally saw Sergio Perez just having floor sweepings instead of a rear wing when Verstappen needed his and we see saw him block underneath the bridge Abu Dhabi and Bottas being told to play a supporting role for most of the 2021 season so it seems very normal to us now but back then it was almost it was like not the done thing there had been big controversy with the, the Ferraris in 2002 with Barrichello basically having to slow up and give Schumacher a, a win and it was even outlawed to have team orders. And I can't remember when, when that rule came and went. Yeah, it, I, I can't remember the
6: exact year yeah. either, but I know that team orders were banned during this period because, as ah, we'll come on to, the famous multi-21 yes. message yeah. uh, was, a, was a, a, well, I was going to say a, a,
2: a clever way of doing it. It wasn't that clever in the end. No, but it, imagine, you know, back then, if there had been a radio message like there was to Perez in Abu Dhabi 2021, going, all right, slow him up, slow him up, back him up, back him up. Like that would have been absolutely outrageous at the time. Yeah, that, that would have been
6: a, a five-race ban and a huge fine, I'd imagine. But uh, <laughs> yeah, back then it was, I think it was after the, the sort of Schumacher-Barrichello um, incidents where, or, or you know, Felipe, Fernando was faster than you. That's the all one, yeah. All those sorts of messages. They left the wrong taste, I guess, in fans mouths where there was a perception that it, the facet driver didn 't always win, so the teams had to come up with cleverer ways to disguise uh pace but yeah. rebelled to be fair to them that they often did let the drivers race that was the the sort of um, the the the, the, dict- uh, the the message from the top was that let them race, and maybe after the second pit stop, whoever comes out in front should should re- you know retain the lead, and McLaren did something very similar for a long time as well with their drivers. So it wasn't always that bad.
2: Yeah, so didn't McLaren have an agreement between Hakkinen and Coulthard a lot of the time that whoever was leading into the first corner, that was it, you finished in that order. That's kind of crazy. I didn't realise that Red Bull had a standing final pit stop agreement though.
6: Yeah, that, that's what they used in certainly in 2013. Whenever they will come onto the, the famous multi 21 yeah, incident in Malaysia, we'll but that, that's that's what we used then. Uh, but it's a bit like the Prost, you know, the Prost Senna first corner incident, where they agreed something similar, where the car that was leading into the first corner would go on to win the race, but Senna uh, decided that wouldn't apply to the restart. So whenever the car, the, the restart happened under red flag conditions, Senna would bombing past and that was that was fine in his eyes. He hadn't broken any team of rage, but... Um, uh,
2: yeah, well, well, look, we'll get to multi-21 right now and looking at the driver's standings for 2013, uh, it's a very different story by this point. So look at this, Sebastian Vettel wins this championship with just three points shy of 400 points and Fernando Alonso is second with 241. <laughs> so this was utter domination and uh, it, it didn't look like that for the first... Six races of the 2013 season. Actually, the the new partnership of Hamilton and Rosberg looked reasonably competitive. Hamilton had won a, a race. Yeah. And actually, Red Bull was struggling a bit on these, I think, softer tyres. They changed the outer wall. Tell me if any of my recollection here is, is incorrect. But I was in the stands uh, at Silverstone in 2013 and basically all the tyres just started exploding. And it turned out that the teams had been, that, say you'd use it on the front left, and then they would just put it on the other side because the wear points would be different. So they would use one on the left and then go, oh, actually, we can use it again on the right hand side. And, and they, because the tyre was being run the wrong way or spun the wrong way, tyres started exploding. And they started basically saying, oh, this is a safety issue. And Red Bull pushed really hard to change the tyres back to the old construction, which suddenly gave them a, a very hard outer wall that suited their car i think aerodynamically i think that's what was it the tires that's were it. squishing a bit causing red bull aerodynamic problems god this is really searching back in my memory uh and then with the stiffer sidewall it suited their aerodynamics and they didn't lose another race and not only that they were disappearing that's exactly what happened i think Ooh. i think Newey described it in exactly those terms the tires were too squishy squishy <laughs> we need, we need <laughs> did, less did squishy tires uh, did he Adrian. use those tech terms yeah I think oh yeah I think uh, summersmotesport.com he was described it exactly the same <laughs> you could squid. just use this as a as a segment in tech talk I think that's as yeah. technical as, as it I, got. I should take over the tech segment <laughs> S- summers and trumpets are awful but yeah so they're dominating now and and Vettel when what race in the season was multi-21 it was it was Malaysia yeah but how far into the season was that oh it was it was quite far far into oh, the okay. season it was t-
6: towards the end of the season um, because I think the was the final it was not the penultimate race because I think China was two weeks later okay. which, um, which might have been what two or three from the end possibly possibly um, but yeah the you're, you're right the, at the start of 2013 the Pirelli tyres were very very soft and, and Red Bull had built a, a very high downforce car as his as New Year's want um, and they, they could they just chewed through the tires. They weren't fit for purpose. So you're right. They lobbied quite hard, got the rules changed. And lo and behold, whenever the 2012 tires came back, Red Bull were absolutely dominant. Um, Mm -hmm. But we get to the the, the Malaysian race and it, it was a rare old incident where you have Weber on top. He didn't win a single race in 2013. Wow! In, in what was arguably the best car for the second half of the, the season. So by that point, Vettel really had found his feet and Weber was absolutely nowhere, increasingly demoralized in this terrible relationship. But for whatever reason in Malaysia, he had a good run. Now he had good pace. He um uh, The team had agreed that whoever was leading coming out of the uh, pits after the final pit stop would win the race. They would control the, the pace. The engines would be turned down. And uh, that's not exactly how it worked out in practice because... Uh, Weber was ahead. Vettel, Vettel came out really close behind them on lap forty-four, I think it was. Um, immediately tried to go past them. They were side by side for the first next two corners, mm-hmm. and then on, on lap forty-six, after what was actually a really good battle, albeit that Seb had brand new tires, he had um, Weber had had a had one set less uh, from uh, practice and qualifying, so he was already on used tires, uh, and he turned the engine down. So. Wasn't really a fair fight as such; more like a sort of knife against a mugging.
2: Uh, it was a mugging. A hugging, <laughs> but but they they tried to control it from the pit wall. Yeah,
6: that was embarrassing. Uh, I mean, that, that's one where Horner will, will wish that they didn't have the the, the FIA broadcast the, the team radio because, um, they, the the first the first sort of hint that anything was was afoot and they weren't allowed to race was the message came on from uh, Vettel's engineer to say, "Seb, multi map twenty one, multi map one and, of course, that means car two stays in front, car one has to stay behind. If it was multi-map 12, it would have been the other way around and mm-hmm. Vettel would be in front. Um, they, the, the, uh, over the next two laps, Weber obviously could see that Vettel was attacking ignoring. really <laughs> aggressively. As he came down the pit straight on lap 46, I think it was, um, Vettel makes him move up the inside Weber squeezes him so close to the wall they almost have an aeroplane crash it was it was really really close stuff Vettel gets passed at the first corner Weber gets passed again and then later in the lap uh, Vettel does the job and, and through they go but we've got team messages from Horner, who doesn't always get on the radio, but things were so embarrassing that he had to come on saying, oh, come on, Seb, this is silly now, careful. And it's, it's a bit like, oh, mind now, down with
2: this sort of thing. It's, it wasn't exactly the most definitive team order you're going to hear. No. Careful. No, um, yeah, and you feel bad because because Weber thought was playing the team game and and thought you know the engines were turned down and then he suddenly put into that situation and in the press conference this is the famous scene of him slamming the water on the table and he's like not disguising how annoyed and how upset he is. Uh, but you mentioned something about lawyers getting involved and I hadn't realised that at all. Yeah, it it, it was uh, one of the, the
6: sort of really strange postscripts to the whole saga and I think it's not that widely known that. Um in his book, uh Mark Weber talks about this and it was Weber's partner who actually grilled Horner, as is often the way behind every every great racing driver as a stronger woman, you know, uh, had a go at Horner and so said, Why was Sebastian never reprimanded for that multi 21 incident? And the answer was that two days after the race, uh <laughs> Red Bull received a letter, a two page letter from uh Vettel's lawyers saying that he was given an unreasonable and um contractually uh um it, well, it would be a breach of contract oh, wow. um, in in the driver's contract, asking him to to uh, obey, obey team orders. So it, there must have been something in Vettel's contract that gave him undisputed number one status, wow. uh, and he got the lawyers involved to fight his corner for him. Because when he when they arrived at the next race in China, Vettel had you know he'd been contrite in the uh, post race interview in Malaysia, but he actually doubled down by the time they got to China, and he was like, you know what, I would do this exactly the same again. Uh, he's not been a supportive teammate. Uh, I was the faster driver. I deserved to win,
2: and it was very, very different. So obviously, the lawyers got involved and, and gave him a new boost of confidence. Wow! See, the thing is, 2021 Vettel is so popular at Aston Martin at the moment because he's he's good old Uncle Seb. He's everyone's F1 uncle, is Seb. But he was a, he was a real aggressive and ruthless driver, especially against weber at uncompromising when you know in 2012 as well i mean look at the 2012 season he wins that title in the final race at Mm. abu dhabi but weber's down in sixth 100 points behind sebastian vettel i mean he was ruthless and then going forward you know even as recently as his ferrari days where he drove his car into lewis hamilton during a safety car out of like just spite so Let's not pretend that he's some you know lovable grandpa. He when if he gets a sniff of a title again, he he'll go back. I think he will revert to old Seb. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, it's it's lovely the stuff he
6: does now for you know equality, um, the the Pride campaign, Black Lives Matter, tying up. up yeah, but if you were being incredibly cynical, if you were being incredibly cynical. You might say that every time he he's in the stands picking up litter, there happens to be a you know a,
2: a an Aston Martin camera crew ooh, following him around. Oh, you are going to get hate mail, Jeff at MissApex No, he hasn't got that <laughs> set up yet. But feedback at MissApex is always open. Uh, it would be interesting to see if if he has teeth again, though, wouldn't it? To to see uh, like that that ruthless twenty thirteen sebastian vettel just so sure in his status as well i think that's the thing about it the belief he had he was just on it for four years
6: yeah well his idol was michael schumacher you know that that was it growing up that's who he he wanted to be and schumacher you know he's well revered now the the movie was great um you know he's got a fantastic legacy but schumacher was mean you know he was really mean. It's the same as Senna. If Senna hadn't been prematurely taken from us in '94. I'm not quite sure he'd have the glittering legacy that he has now. People didn't like him, he because he was mean. He drove people off the road. He drove into the side of people. you tried to pass him. You were having an accident, or he was going through. Um, Vettel was exactly the same. He was ruthless in those, that period. Absolutely ruthless, and not just on track. It was it was the off track stuff as well that that he wasn't afraid to get involved in. And um, you could see at Ferrari whenever Leclerc had genuine pace and. Vettel's status wasn't quite as important anymore that his whole world imploded. I thought he was gone after the, the Ferrari era, but uh, he's still got that temper, that mean streak. And, and you could see it mm-hmm. when, when he came wheel to wheel, especially with his teammate at, at Ferrari. Mm,
2: amazing. He's it's a, it's, it's, it's a bad man. It's, it's been amazing to go so, in my mind, this is a sign we're getting old, to go so little back into the past, really, to only go back to 2010, 2013. Yeah, it, it does feel like a, a different era of formula one and just thinking about how how the teammate battles there where how it was just not done for team orders it, it's just laughable now and it, it's amazing how far the sport has changed because because now and i'm in favor of it i've always loved team battles and team strategy and stuff so i'm not I'm, i was not opposed to verstappen like deploying perez as a mobile roadblock i thought it was quite i thought it was quite cool quite neat i would take three car teams And have walls of cars, you know, like have a wall of Red Bulls holding off Hamilton in the final race. Anyway, Jeff, thank you so much for this. Thank you for your time. And I hope you'll come back to the shed and give us some more teammate battles in the future. Love to. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. A glimpse back into our recent past there with Jeff. I'm sure we'll get Jeff back in the shed uh, very soon. Okay, so... That's the end of the F1 content of the show. Uh, but just as a little bonus throughout the off-season, I just put together these little interviews before Christmas where I just sat down one-on-one with a member of the Missed Apex crew because I, I I love all those guys and I just want you to get to know them outside of the F1 chat. So I just sat them down one-on-one on a Zoom call and it was just nosy, basically, about their lives. So uh, maybe we'll end a bunch of the off-season shows with with one of those meet the panel interviews just little 15 20 minute segments and the first of which is coming up now
0: When you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online
2: And now I'm introducing race driver, Bradley Philpot. Hey, Brad, how's it going?
7: Good afternoon, Spanners. Yeah, it's going really well.
2: Yeah. And now uh, you are one of the most popular panellists and also one of the most hated panellists as well. Is that fair to say you have been you've been Marmite this season?
7: I'm hated by by the right people, though. Um, oh so, <laughs> okay. uh, no, no. yeah, it's been it's been a, a bit of a different year, mm. this um, this Formula One season, because I've I've really nailed my colours to the mast, and I, I've actually never been a particular fan of a of one driver. I've I've no. always seen myself as a fan of Formula One, and I'd actually I continue that in into this nailing my colours to the mast. But I just say one of the drivers in the title fight aligns with the the way I like Formula One drivers to act and drive. So it's not that I've become a particularly polarised fan of one driver. It's just yeah. that. There's only two drivers in the title fight,
2: and I can attest to that. It's, it's sort of almost unfortunate the way it's it's worked out because you've not been like a Hamilton rah rah fan. In fact, like you've picked me up when I've been too partisan on one side or the other. It just so happens that your philosophy of racing has landed fully on one driver's side and against another driver, and and I I've seen that materialize. But like you say, now that it has become partisan and that kind of bipolar, you have nailed your your flag to that mast and gone right i'm all in
7: i've lent into it a little bit because <laughs> yeah. i saw I, I saw i got a reaction to be honest i saw that i would get i get massive amounts of, of social media interactions from just saying what i thought and telling the truth rather than trying to sit on the fence and, and be um artificially balanced I've, yeah i've tried to just be honest and and if that comes across as bias my view is that my bias is towards good racing and and regulations being followed correctly because I think that benefits all of the racing, not just my guy. I actually don't care if it's one particular guy. Right. It's just that that this year Hamilton has fitted into that into that mould.
2: And it is funny that when people come at you and go, "Well, you're just doing a thing for a social media interaction," it's like, "Well, what kind of?" Because everyone you know that you follow or creates content is definitely doing things, but in this case it was almost like a perfect marriage. You went, oh, by kind of telling the truth and saying what I think, and just not being ashamed of it, uh, that has, you know, put you in a particular space.
7: Yeah. I I think, well, I've certainly, I've met a lot of new people online. Uh, I've been introduced to, to certain other podcasts who are much more Hamilton biased than Miss Apex. Um, And I might even appear on one or two of them at some point, but, it, it's been a window into how these kind of uh, how these polarizing issues yeah. can drive up followership and and likes and views and that kind of thing. And, and just as a rough overview, I, I spent I've been on Twitter since two thousand and nine, and this November I had around four thousand like uh, four thousand followers, and that's that was pretty high for me. As of one month later, just just under a month, I've. I'm just about to break 10,000. So the title fight culminating in this this epic scrap the last few rounds with lots of controversy and, and on-track things happening, lots of things for me to talk about. All the posts just seem to generate people clicking follow because more people want to hear maybe the thing that they want to hear.
2: That's so. true, yeah. But, and I, but I look at your posts, and I know you fairly well. You've been on Missed Apex podcast for the last five years, I think. Nothing I've yeah, seen so. you tweet or say on the podcast is anything that you don't think... So you've not like been sitting there going, you know, you've not gone the Katie Hopkins route going, how can I cause outrage? You've just been saying stuff from a racing driver's point of view. And I will say to people who don't know Brad in context, you know, we do call you Brad, but quite a lot. A, because you are incapable of anything close to a human hug. And secondly, because you are very direct.
7: Um. Yeah. OK. Yeah, I know. I know you call me that.
2: <laughs> <Thank> <laughs>
7: you. I've worked on the hugs. Um, But you're right. I I, I haven't said anything online that I I wouldn't say to you guys. And in fact, quite often what happens is I'll send you a WhatsApp message to our Missed Apex group, Mm. and then I'll just tweet that exact same message because it's just... It's just the, the thought that's come into my head at that time. So.
2: There was a time when and you, it took you an awful long time to catch me out. I was taking things that you wrote in the WhatsApp group and then I was tweeting them and just giggling. And then like about three weeks later, you suddenly said, Spanners, what are you doing? Like, oh, I've been doing that for ages. That was fun. That was about three years ago. But I want to talk about uh, you and your your personal life. It's been very interesting Knowing you and what you're trying to do in racing, because from a very early age, you've been trying to do something very dumb. You've been chasing your stupid, stupid dreams by trying to be in the world of racing with no money. It's It's been a ridiculous pursuit, if I'm honest.
7: Yeah, I don't want to plead poverty. I don't come from a wealthy family, but we've, we've, we're also not super poor. But we definitely are not a family that has enough money to just spend a load of money on racing.
2: Yeah, you're not um, Mazepin.
7: Yeah. Any racing that I've done after being a little kid, obviously when you're a, when you're a 10 year old kid doing go-karts, you don't really have a lot of say over it. You're just doing it and someone else is paying to do it.
2: Your dad's living your, or sorry, your, well, uh, a guardian is living their dreams through you.
7: Yeah. So actually my, my actual dad has no motorsport interest whatsoever. He was an international figure skater. Um, uh, Same, same as my mum. And so they're, they're into ice skating and I, I can barely stand up in the restroom. So, I I actually I'm not that bad. I'm better. I'm probably above average, but that but nowhere near as good as I should be. So, yeah, it's my um, my stepdad when I was young and my um, and my granddad. They're kind of motorsport people, and so there was some kind of. Okay. uh, No one was trying to live through me and my brother, but we just really liked watching touring cars and Formula One and stuff.
2: Okay, so there was enough money to sit you in a go kart and try and be competitive. How did that go?
7: Yeah, it was okay. Although I was I was much, much too timid as a little kid. I was I also didn't have very good guidance. So one of the people, one of the guardians was was a a Jos Verstappen oh, attitude esque. parent, but without actually knowing what they were talking about. So I'm sure <laughs> right. Max, for example, will have um had to put up with probably lots of horrible things as a as a karting child, but at least the person doing those did actually know how to drive understood motorsport like a formula one driver and had money behind and all that kind of thing i kind of had that attitude but with no (laughs) no basis behind it so i wasn't guided very well as a kid and i was just i actually ended up making me more timid as a driver i remember very clearly being a cadet driver and being afraid to overtake other carts and stuff i was just i was afraid of getting into trouble
8: Uh, and so and being told off
7: yeah i didn't want to make a move and spin and get told off and and so that kind of drove me away from it And it wasn't i was away from that environment and i decided to i wanted to go and do karting for fun so i'd go and do indoor karting as a as a kid and then and i actually when i turned 18 i took out a big loan and just bought myself a go-kart and went and did it myself it wasn't until that kind of more uh, independent phase that i actually got better at doing the driving part
2: now i didn't know whether you were going to open up and like reveal that, that you just went into, right, I'm just going to borrow a bunch of money, get in debt to give yourself a shot at at going further within karting. And was there another time that you did that in cars? Yeah,
7: yeah, there was. Yeah. So I did some, I took out, so this was back in the time where finance was quite easily available, readily available um, before any kind of financial crash. And I I took, yeah, I took the loan to go karting, bought a rubbish cart, didn't know what I was doing, but I just loved it and, and learned a lot doing stuff myself. And then I was like, okay, so car racing is not that much more expensive than this and finance is easy to get. And that's money I have to worry about later. In, yeah, not, that's not future now. money. Yeah, exactly. Not so I now. thought I'd let future Brad worry about that. So I took <laughs> out another loan to go and race Toyota MR2s. Um, oh. At a similar kind of time, I applied for a job at Palmer Sport, um, at Bedford Autodrome. So to work on the, with, with really not a lot of experience apart from this karting behind me, I didn't really have a place going for a job at a racing school, but that's how a lot of people get into it. And so these two things were happening at once. I was about to do a season of car racing. I was about to start becoming an instructor, got the job. And then very they kind of went hand in hand. I was on track all day instructing mm-hmm. people, coaching drivers how to get quicker in yeah. much, much quicker cars than the car I would then go and race at the weekend. Um, and I was, I was then doing well in the MR2s, in the Toyota MR2s, because I was getting used to really quick prototype cars and, and um, you know, big V8 yeah. Jaguars and that kind of thing.
2: Wow, so this what series was that? These, these Toyota series. It was,
7: it was just called the Toyota MR2 oh, okay. Challenge. It's kind of like just the UK Toyota MR2 Mark One so single-make
2: championship. So it's all owner drivers. So are there people yeah. there that had like turbo sh- flames shooting out the back and infinite spares?
7: No, they're well they're kind of all run to the same regulation. Right. Although people people could tune more or less, or it you know it's like anything. If you've got more money, you can find ways to make your car faster, but I, I didn't own the car or anything. I just paid for a drive for a season. I right. think it was something something around about seven thousand pounds to do the full year. Oh, okay. t- would you? No, yeah. you I don't think you could race a Citroen C one for three races for that kind of money. But this was a this was a while ago. I'm actually pretty old now, Spanish.
2: So. Well, yeah. You are you're the appropriate age for a GT driver is what we exactly. say. What are you 35? Yeah, thirty-five? Yeah, thirty-five.
7: So I'm not over the hill for a GT driver. I've got friends who are, you know pushing 50 who are still competitive GT drivers. But yeah, I'm certainly not on the single-seater ladder either. So yeah, so I went and did that Toyota MR2 Challenge. I won the championship in in my first and only year, and that kind of gave me a bit more confidence, especially with the the race instructing continuing.
2: Yeah, well, okay, so you're doing Palmer Sport, and I have to say that is one of the first things that appealed to me uh, about you, was that you are there instructing and you're telling people how to drive. And we've had so many great episodes over the years where like you've taught us about what is understeer, what is oversteer, how to feel it and like you've you've you can you can you're such a good instructor. I'll say that up front. Like you have shaved seconds and seconds off me on a cart lap uh, around a sim race. Like you know exactly what you're talking about and, and and that was what was was of interest to me. But around the time you started with Miss Apex podcast, you just come off the back of doing very well in the Race of Champions and with no disrespect to your reputation or your Toyota championship you were somewhat of a, a wild draft into that competition to suddenly then be with Ricardo and Vettel.
7: Yeah, so to skip forward basically a decade. Oh, that's sorry. MR. Uh, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. We, we couldn't, <laughs> we don't have enough time to sit and tell you um, the whole no. 10 years worth. But essentially in in between that Toyota Championship in 2005 or 6 and um, and the Race of Champions, which was 2015, I had a decade of sitting in race cars by that point. I'd won other scholarships. I'd been a Peugeot factory driver at the Nürburgring. Yeah. I'd won various other things. I'd won the Red Bull UK kart fight and, and gone and been a guest of Red Bull racing at the Brazilian Grand Prix and driven on the F1 simulator. Lots of cool stuff had happened in that, in between those two events. Didn't you also test F3 cars? Yeah. So that was, that was actually just after the race ah. of champions, but yes, I also had the opportunity at Palmer Sport because, um, because the same company ran the British formula three championship, and Palmer was, was uh, responsible for doing some of the testing. I would do some of the testing as well. Um, and and some of the other high end instructors would. Um, and so I had the opportunity to drive, you know, good single seats yeah. not just the corporate cars. And so anyway, I I'd had a whole 10 years of, or more of doing fast car stuff. And so I got this opportunity to race at the race of champions off of the back of a Facebook competition. I think if I remember correctly, I had to get votes, public votes for, my video that I made, like a little kind of highlights reel of my <laughs> racing that I'd done. Yeah. And if you got in the top two of public votes, you went through to this grand final shootout at the London Olympic Stadium. Um, and I won that and then got to race against all the you know, the F1 drivers present, Vettel and Ricardo and Massa at the time, Jensen okay.
2: Button. Okay, so you were side by side with those guys. Now, this is really interesting because so, at the time, the race of champions, so many F1 drivers in there you came, I believe, second in the skills challenge with Vettel third. That was the highlight.
7: Yeah. So there were there were two skills challenges. There was the the one I was actually supposed to be entered for, which was the celebrity skills challenge, where I was up against lots of kind of kind of race racer people or amateur racers or Olympians, all kind of celebrity people. Sure. And I won that one pretty easily. And then I was off the back of that, entered into the actual skills challenge, which was kind of a bit of a bonus. And that was against all of the drivers competing in the race of champions. So this was basically like an auto test course where you had to do donuts, go between cones, drift an aerial atom around this course and and get back to the beginning in the shortest time. And you're right, I think Petter Solberg won um, and I believe I was second to him with Vettel behind um, and, and and then all the other Formula One drivers behind that.
2: Yeah. And so was, was, was that the only competition that you did? Did you didn't so, get to do uh, any of the... No,
7: and I was also entered into the main Race of Champions competition as well, which was yeah. like a bonus bonus because one of the MotoGP riders injured themselves. It might have been Mark Marquez. I don't really know MotoGP very well. But- no, no one does. They injured themselves at a party. There was then a wild card space available. So, because I was there, into that. And I had a helmet, I got, I got to take this place. Brilliant. Um, I wasn't really expecting it. And mm. without wanting to make too many excuses, I didn't get <laughs> the go. same practice. I didn't get the same practice <laughs> sure. as everyone else. When I turned up on the Thursday, everyone else had already been doing laps. I saw, you know, Jolien Palmer and Susie Wolf and all, all the other guys, um, all the Formula One drivers present, were already doing loads of practice laps and had them on the board. And I rocked up then had to go through all my shootout procedure with with my other guy that I was there to beat for this completely separate competition. And then I kind of got thrown into yeah. the main competition pretty near the end. So that's my excuse. But I did progress through to the quarterfinals, I believe. <laughs> I got further than Button and Massa and a few of the other F1 guys, but unfortunately mm. didn't get to race them directly. I raced against Mick Doohan. Oh, right, yeah. The dad of yeah. Jack Doohan, who was in Formula 2 this weekend. And, um, and obviously, you know, very, very well-known uh, motorcycle racer. <laughs> And um, Alex Buncombe, who's a, a Nissan GT3 driver, so they were my competition.
2: So seeing those guys like up front, they're all obviously very good drivers out of their their main field. But it kind of must be a little bit gratifying to go. Eh, I'm kind of mixing it here in this company.
7: Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't too overawed at that point because having been at Palmer Sport instructing for for a decade before. I had a lot of interactions with Formula One drivers who were there bringing their mechanics for days out. Yeah. Um, Ricardo and Fiat came and I, I sat next to Daniel Ricardo and did some laps with him. And oh, I was quicker than him over a lap, obviously at my home track, yeah. which I knew very well. But at least that gave me a bit of a benchmark that these people aren't, <laughs> they're not gods who can just come and yes. destroy you. I sat next to Damon Hill. In fact, to put this into context, Alex Van Gene from our podcast has beaten a time that Damon Hill sat, sat, um, sat next to me. So it, that shows you that these uh, ex drivers, uh, maybe lose some of their edge, um, yeah, or it shows that Van Gin is incredible, but um, <laughs> it's definitely the former. But yeah, we had a lot of a lot of chance to to sit next to or at least interact with high level drivers in that environment. So jumping yeah. in the race of champions wasn't wasn't too. It was more like it was a special one off event for me rather than um, wow, look at these these other oh, star drivers.
2: Yeah, so interesting. Like at Palmer Sport, you are uh, obviously comparing yourself day in day out with the other instructors and the other drivers, but also uh, that's quite a high profile track. So you get a lot of like celebrities there to get your instruction.
7: Yeah. Yeah. I, I coached a lot of, a lot of celebs over the years. So many, so that I actually dropped I can't some names, even...
2: Drop some names, Brad. That's um, what so I'm after. I, spent,
7: I spent a couple of days with Prince William and Harry. Oh, nice. Um, who, who are some other celebs that aren't Formula One drivers? Did they
2: have to have bodyguards hanging off the back?
7: They they had bodyguards come and check the cars beforehand for bombs and there was all in fact I even I've instructed Prince William's personal bodyguard whilst he had a gun in his you know, we yeah. would never normally go out on a racetrack with someone with a gun, but he wasn't gonna take it off. I wasn't gonna force him to, so he wasn't that. that.
2: You weren't gonna win that argument.
7: No. Um yeah. so yeah, so and, and people from the TV, uh Dragon's Den people, Deborah mm. Meaden and those kind of guys, all, all sorts of kind of minor to mid-level celebs. And then there were lots of footballers that came down as well. I think Ronaldo came, although I didn't instruct him.
2: So in our world, like you are a racing god as far as we're concerned. And, you know, we talk about talk to you about the racing experiences you've had. We haven't even had time to really touch on the Nürburgring stuff where you've been a VLN-class champion. But, you know, you know racing in and out. You've driven a thousand different race cars. You understand how to get a car around a lap. Your full-time job is is testing tyres professionally to the limit you must have the same frustration my wife has as a professional singer where the first thing people want to know is uh oh uh, have you had an album out have you toured at Wembley and you online will get oh what does he know he wasn't even an F1 driver but people just neglect that there is this whole pyramid underneath it with incredibly fast talented knowledgeable guys
7: yeah that's probably the main of the main um, things I have to deal with when when critiquing drivers, Formula One drivers on track um, conduct is, well, you and me have both raced the same number of Formula One races, yeah, so yeah, our yeah. opinions are equally valid. <laughs> and and I, I'm trying to think, I haven't ever really thought of a great way to quickly quash that, but I think it'd be something similar to saying if someone, someone who had a very strong basis in science and had you know, uh, several science degrees in a particular field. Yeah,
2: no. And Prize. They, they
7: commented something oh, on something, and someone said, "Well, both of us have the same number of Nobel prizes, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, your, our opinions are equally mm. valid." And it's not really doesn't really work, but yeah, I, I try and just brush that off because I'm I kind of know that I know what I'm talking about, so I try I tend to confidently state the things anyway.
2: And um, without bigging you up too much, and I will do because obviously you're you're my panelist as well, you're our driver expert, but there are a lot of drivers who don't have the same communication skill. And there are a lot of drivers who don't have actually your breadth of experience around different vehicles and that kind of coaching experience as well, but they ca- will carry a lot more weight because they drove a GT4 car for a season. And, and so that, that is also frustrating as well. I should imagine.
7: I have raced GT4, just point that out as well. Right, I came sorry. third, came third in the, at the Nordschleife in a <laughs> GT4 Porsche with no practice, but, um, but yeah, it is exactly <laughs> that. Um, But hopefully you never know I, as we said earlier not not quite over the hill so not might get the opportunity to do some some more things end goal is race gt3s regularly but financially it's it's pretty unlikely
2: so i mean we have this argument offline as well which i think i always think your end goal should be a a, a motorsport communicator i think you're excellent at that but i can sense that in you you go if you fully lean into that you're you're giving up somehow the, the ridiculous stupid dream of being a racing driver that had no real money
7: yeah that's kind of that's kind of accurate um yeah. i'd rather do both uh, because one lends weight to the other mm. so if i was out regularly racing a, a gt3 car which is realistically there's nothing really above that which would be suitable for me i didn't end up racing uh, you know racing in formula three and formula two and that kind of thing so prototypes is that's what they're reserved for those kind of drivers, you know, yeah. LMP2s, LMP1s, that kind of thing. So that's, that's out of the window. Obviously, I'm way too old for single-seated. So GT racing is really the the way for me. I dabbled in touring cars last year. It didn't go too well. But again,
2: everything seemed against it, you, to be fair, in, in, yeah, in that scenario. It, it seemed like one of impl- the toughest I experiences. Didn't know they, they give new drivers ballast. Like, what's the... Where, Oh yeah. You know what? I always forget about that.
7: I don't, to be honest, I don't think the new driver ballast. So, so just to explain for Mm. anyone who has no idea what we're talking about, I had a a one-off weekend in the British touring cars last year, um, just about a year ago, last November. And um, I went in reasonably undercooked. You have to have new driver ballast. So for new drivers to dissuade teams from just putting in different drivers the whole Mm. time and making it messy, new drivers have to carry this penalty weight, which doesn't help, but it was pouring with rain, whole weekend anyway so i don't think the ballast made that much difference to be honest the the difference really was no new wet tires which makes a big big difference which i I now know and in hindsight had i known that before the weekend i i wouldn't have signed up to it um and just horrendous weather so you know no no practice in the wet and then just straight out and and you got to do the business so yeah um so yeah anyway that's at least i had a, a bit of a taste of that as well but yeah so i was just i mentioned that because it's either touring cars or GT cars for me in the future the and future. gt is what i prefer because i like that style they look cooler because they're like supercars for a start and I, I prefer the endurance style of racing
2: it's not yet it's not over you've probably got a couple of good years left in you i reckon I i'm reckon younger
7: than that. hamilton so if he can keep yeah. doing formula one for a couple more <laughs> years give then that means i can definitely keep doing gts for five more
2: years or maybe oh, more but finally i don't think either of the two options we explored are correct for you what people won't know is that you are a massive musical theatre nerd, and there is still time, I think, for you to make your 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 West End and Broadway debuts.
7: Fortunately for uh, for everyone else, I'm not intending to pursue that. And um, I know I um I did some amateur dramatics as a kid, but I, I am a massive theater, musical theatre fan. We watched Tick Tick Boom, um, me and Becca at the at the weekend, which is out on Netflix at the moment. Um, we're massive into Hamilton, In the Heights, some other classic musicals. Love it.
2: Uh, any time Brad has more than half a sherry in him, it is full-on show tunes and rap music. I'll, I will give that away about you, Brad. I've got a video from the other night when you were having a sing-song the other night. Do you want me to... Oh, really? I'll just post Maybe. that online. So
7: Maybe not. At Spanners
2: no. Ready, look for at Bradley Philpott. We'll, we'll stick that online. Brad, thanks for dropping into the shed and being so candid. And uh, will you continue with Miss Apex, or are you going to launch your own Brad Philpott Rage Toxic Podcast?
7: Um, oh, that's a great question. You've put that idea into my head now. Oh, no, so, curses! Um, of course, of course. I'll continue whenever I'm whenever <laughs> I'm asked to be on Missed Apex. I will be there.
2: And that's all we've got time for today. Uh, we will see you again for a live show on Sunday, the sixteenth at eight pm. So come and join us uh, live on YouTube, and you can join our live chat on the Patreon Slack group as well. But wherever we see you next, work hard. Be kind and have fun this was Mr. Apex podcast